Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. We're also joined down the line from New York by Rob Armstrong, our US financial editor, and our guests this week are Stephen Jones, chief executive of the Banking Association UK Finance, and Rushanara Ali, the Labour MP and member of the Treasury Select Committee. This week, we'll be taking a look at push payment fraud and whether this is the next PPI in terms of compensation for the banks. Also, Deutsche Bank comes under pressure from regulators to appoint a new investment banking chief. And Rob will be reporting on JP Morgan and why it's been buying bonds. So let's look at our first story of the day and the issue of so-called push payment fraud in the UK. This is the practice of where bank customers are duped into transferring money to rogue agents. This might be someone who claims to have done work for you and is trying to get money. It might be a fraudster you don't know, but it's a growing problem, Caroline. Yeah, that's right. So just in the first half of this year, £208 million was stolen this way. And that compares to £354 million last year. So we can see that it's a growing problem. And you hear some really sad stories. Officially, this is called authorised push payment fraud. And the authorised kind of distinguishes it from instances of fraud where perhaps your bank details are stolen without your knowledge. In this case, the customer actually authorises the payment because he or she has been conned into making this kind of payment to scammers in ways such as you've detailed. So last week, the Treasury Select Committee put out this pretty punchy report about how to deal with this. And essentially, it came up with three, four really important recommendations, some of which the banking industry will really hate. The most contentious of which I have to say was this suggestion that banks should consider recompensing victims of historic push payment fraud. At the moment, the situation is that there's this voluntary code that's been in effect since May. And banks are compensating victims since then. But the issue has been that certainly for the last few years, we've seen many, many victims who are probably out of pocket by hundreds of millions of pounds who haven't been getting their money back. Only about one in five have been able to get their money back from banks in this ad hoc system that existed before this voluntary code came into effect. And it should be said, this is not people being dumb. Often, customers are falling victim to very sophisticated duping. There's ways in which I've seen it myself. You get a message from your bank saying, is it okay to transfer this money? And it follows a genuine string of messages that have come from your bank. They are able to replicate that identity very smoothly and convincingly. That's absolutely right. It's getting ever more difficult to discern what is actually a scammer's email from the real thing. And I think if we as financial journalists find it difficult, you have to ask whether the general public can actually do that. 
Let me just bring in Rushanara Ali, who's Labour MP, member of the Treasury Select Committee, which, as you say, put out that report on the topic a few days ago. Thanks so much for joining us, Rishnara. The key question, or one of the key questions here, is how the compensation process should take place. I mentioned in my introduction that for the banks, there is a risk that this snowballs really into quite an expensive remediation process. PPI is obviously the thing in all the banks' minds, a scandal, obviously a mis-selling scandal in that case, which was the subject of retroactive remediation. They are very concerned about that being the case with this. What are the arguments for backdating compensation, would you say? The main argument for calling for the retrospective payment to be made for those who've been defrauded is that banks have known about these problems since 2016. And although the voluntary contingent reimbursement model is welcome, it doesn't go far enough in responding to the fact that people have been conned, as you have pointed out. And what we're calling for is that that reimbursement model needs to be compulsory and it needs to be backdated and that the FCA should look very closely at all of this because too often banks are lacklustre. Not all of them. Obviously, there are some very good examples of good practice, but they tend to be lacklustre in catching up with these sorts of problems. For instance, the term negligence, they don't define it properly in relation to those cases where they deem somebody who has been a victim of APP to have been negligent. And so we are asking them to take steps to improve on what they're doing. What they have done so far is welcome, but it's not good enough. It's a tricky area, though, isn't it? Because... In some cases, I suppose, customers will themselves have been largely at fault. In others, their data may have been stolen in a way that has nothing to do with the bank. Why should it be the banks that bear all the brunt of this, would you say? The focus of this report is the issues where the banks are responsible. So we are making a number of recommendations to improve on what's happening so that people are prevented from becoming victims of these sorts of fraud cases. The first is that they should have an approach that involves confirmation of payee where they cross-reference names with account numbers and sort codes. And we are calling on banks to do that by March 2020. That would go a long way in improving on protecting customers. We are also asking that there is a 24-hour delay on all initial payments so that that provides the opportunity for consumers and banks for checks to be made to make sure that people aren't being defrauded And as you have both pointed out already, highly sophisticated customers can get defrauded. This is not just about those who are vulnerable, though they tend to be the worst affected. It's all of us. And with the proliferation of technology and banks are using those technologies, and that's a positive mostly, there are areas where things are going wrong. And we need to make sure that if consumers are to have confidence in the banking system and the services that we use, the banks take responsibility in making sure that happens. It's in their self-interest to sort out these problems so that the technologies that they're using the forms of banking they're providing to their customers are fit for purpose in an era of the technological revolution where if we get this right, then it will be good for business, it will be good for banks, it will be good for consumers. We're not there yet and that's why we're calling on the government and the SCA to take action on areas where banks need a bit more of a push, if you like, and other areas where we're calling on banks to voluntarily make those changes because we believe it will be in their interests as well as in consumers' interests. Thank you very much for that, Rishnara Ali. 
Well, let's go over now to Stephen Jones, who's Chief Executive of the Banking Association UK Finance. Stephen, thanks ever so much for joining us. Is this another scandal for the banking sector? Is this the next PPI? Authorised push payment fraud is a terrible thing to happen to anyone. The question is, who should repay that victim, accepting that the victim is genuinely a victim? Is it the operators of the payment system, or are there other responsibilities in our economy to which liability should be attributed? There is no regulation specifically on this or legislation specifically on this. So the finance sector took it upon itself to work with the consumer organizations over a period of 18 months, leading to the launch of the APP contingent reimbursement model in May of this year. This is the voluntary code which you set up. It's a voluntary code, which means that there is absolute clarity from May of this year as to the circumstances in which a victim of APP fraud will be reimbursed by their bank. What that code does is establish a minimum level of responsibility that a user of the payment system has and a minimum level of responsibility that the bank making the payment and receiving the payment has. And in circumstances where both the banks and the consumer have done the minimum level, What it guarantees is that signatory banks will nevertheless, even though they have acted responsibly under the terms of the code, reimburse victims who themselves have also been sufficiently responsible as defined by the code. So it makes it clear as to the circumstances in which a consumer will be reimbursed when they have fallen victim to APP fraud. That is all reassuring and it sounds very decent. But what the TSC wants is for this to go far further and what other bodies have argued for as well is that this should be retroactive because these payment frauds date back several years and I think people have talked about making this retroactive to 2016. What do you think about that? I don't think the TSC, if you read their recommendations, has formally recommended that it be retroactive. I think individual members of the TSC have commented that they would like that to be the case, but that is not a formal recommendation of the TSC in its report, firstly. And secondly, retroactive application of standards to circumstances when those standards were not previously in force and of that clarity is pretty unfair because you're essentially applying the law backwards. You wouldn't do that with tax. You wouldn't do that with criminal legislation. But that is what happened with PPI and it's ended up costing the industry tens of billions of pounds. Obviously, what's different with this? Well, I think that what happened before May 2019 is that it was up to the individual banks to apply their own codes and standards. It is possible that those standards were not entirely consistent between one payments operator and another. But if there were issues in terms of whether a customer should have been reimbursed before May 2018, that customer could and should have gone to the Financial Ombudsman Service, who could have made a judgment in their favour. It would be unfair to anyone to expect the code to be applied retrospectively. What happened before May 2019 is that FOS jurisdiction applied. FOS jurisdiction, could you explain that? The Financial Ombudsman Service was available to a victim who felt that their bank should have repaid them when they have been a victim of an APP fraud and their bank did not in fact do so. So in the circumstances of pre-May 2019 frauds, those victims who feel aggrieved should refer back to the Financial Ombudsman Service and make a complaint there. Okay, a final thing for you. I have been provocative and made comparisons with PPI here. 
this is not anything to do, in normal cases anyway, with banks trying to rip off their customers. This is about victims of crime and banks arguably being caught up in it as much as customers are. You've mentioned the broader kind of responsibilities in the economy. Is that an allusion to the telecoms companies particularly? Because these data breaches are often facilitated using telecoms services and they can be quite sophisticated. I mean, you can't often blame customers for being duped by these things. There are multiple examples of where data breaches in other sectors have caused circumstances where fraud is easier to be perpetrated on victims and it is perpetrated through the payment system. That could be telecoms, it could be retail, it could be social media, it could be airlines. Where someone who holds consumer data, including their payments details, is breached by a criminal and that criminal has access to that data, that criminal could perpetrate fraud more easily or it could sell that data to a third party who might choose to do so. In those circumstances, we believe very strongly that there is an important public policy debate that needs to be had about the indirect cost of those data breaches to consumers and in particular compensation or contribution towards compensation for victims in the payment system because typically it is in the payment system that the data breach results in the consumer suffering loss. And so that debate is being taken forward. You'll have seen that the Treasury Committee has specifically recommended that the Information Commissioner, when it levies its fines, thinks about applying at least some of those fines towards victim reimbursement. We wholly support that move and believe it is very important that that debate now be had about how we create appropriate liability models that ensure that customers can be reimbursed on a more fair basis. I think, as you would expect me to say, Patrick, it is not fair that the banks are the people who are bearing the buck to reimburse consumers who deserve to be reimbursed in circumstances where the breach has happened away from the banks. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Stephen. That's very helpful. Let's move on to our second topic. And Stephen, you've been working on a piece with colleagues about Deutsche Bank and the pressure it's been coming under from regulators to reverse this decision that was put in place a few months ago for Christian Seving, the chief executive of the group, to take personal charge of the investment bank. It seems now they're coming under pressure to appoint a specific investment banking boss. He's spread too thin, is the view. That's right. Back in July, when this huge overhaul was announced, with Deutsche withdrawing from large parts of investment banking, including cash equities, prime brokerage, Christian Saving, the CEO, fired Garth Ritchie, the former head of the unit, and took over himself. Now, whilst running a very troubled banking group, regulators have decided that they want some more permanent oversight of the most troubled unit of this, the investment bank. So whilst they're not calling for change immediately, they are adding pressure on the board and Christian Saving himself in order to appoint a full-time head, someone who can keep a close eye on the unit as it's going through this big existential restructuring, which they hope will leave them with a viable and profitable business at the end. Obviously, it's too early to say how quickly they'll accede to this pressure and who they might appoint, I suppose. Any guesses on who might be in line? Well, it's a very difficult job in the sense that it's preferable, you'll notice from most of the new appointments in Deutsche, it's preferable to be German. You have to have a knowledge of international banking. You have to be able to cut costs and cut headcount quite brutally so you may not be very popular. And there seems to be an ever-thinning rank of senior European investment bankers to take over. Remember, a large part of your compensation at Deutsche will be in shares. 
And if the last decade is by anything to go by, being optimistic about that increasing hasn't been a particularly wise choice from your bank balance perspective. So there are a few people out there. Christian Meisner left Bank of America a while ago and his name keeps popping up. And of course, you have lots of fig bankers who are very good at analysing balance sheets and what businesses are working and don't. These are financial institution group bankers, fig bankers, not people who are involved in picking crops from the trees. No, no, there are very few similarities between those two jobs. So it remains to be seen. I mean, Deutsche is trying to promote internally and sort of rebase its culture around its more Germanic roots. So we could see somebody like Christian Saving himself, who's come up more on the risk management side, taking over the investment bank and really trying to pair in some of the more casino bets it had been taking in the past. A final word, you mentioned it's a few months now since this radical restructuring was announced and they've been starting to implement things in terms of cutting headcount, selling off bits of the business and so on. How has the market taken to that? What's happened to the share price in the intervening period? Well, the share price did initially recover after this big bang announcement, the kitchen sinking in July. But since then, they've had another quarter, the third quarter, underperforming expectations And the shares took a pretty big dive, down 8% on the day last week. So quite clearly, investors are not optimistic about Deutsche being able to grow its way responsibly out of its problems, especially considering the negative interest rate environment. Sounds like it's all the more important to get the right person running the investment bank. Thanks very much for that, Stephen. Let's move on now to our final topic and a look at that JP Morgan story. Rob, you wrote a very interesting piece about why JP Morgan is buying bonds, $130 billion worth year to date, while trimming their loan book. Well, remember that they're trying to do three things at once, like a lot of other big banks. They want to satisfy regulators' requirements for capital. They want to return lots of capital to their shareholders as dividends or buybacks. And they want to increase their return on equity. So how do they do all three of those things at once? It's not easy. First, remember that J.P. Morgan in last year's stress test had just about as little capital as they could under what the Fed calls their stress scenario. So they are already optimizing their business to use as little capital as they can and still pass the stress test. Now, they could add more risk to the balance sheet despite that, but they want to return as much capital as they can to the shareholders, over $30 billion in capital this year. So what do you do when your balance sheet is already as tight as it can be and you want to return a lot of capital to your shareholders at the same time? How can you push up your returns under those circumstances? Well, one thing you can do is swap loans for bonds because the bonds are treated much more favorably in terms of the capital you have to hold against them. So you sell a mortgage loan, you buy a mortgage security instead, and your return on equity goes up because you have to hold less capital against the bond. So what do you think this shows more broadly about JP? Well, I think the most important thing it shows is that the Fed's stress tests really are having a big effect on banks' choices. Even J.P. Morgan, the most profitable and financially strongest of all the banks, is tailoring its choices because of the Fed's capital rules. The Fed's stress test regulations have teeth and they are still biting the banks. And Rob, finally, does this have implications for the broader economy? 
Well, you might think so, because if J.P. Morgan is deciding not to hold loans, you'd think, well, maybe the effect of these capital rules is that banks don't lend money. But it's not really like that. J.P. Morgan can still make as many loans as it wants. It's just deciding to sell a lot of them on rather than hold them itself. But if more banks all around America make a similar choice and decide, geez, with these low rates and these capital rules, why is it even that profitable for me to lend money at all? In other words, if this becomes a widespread phenomenon, then you could see capital rules plus low rates combining to actually decrease the amount of credit creation in America. And frankly, we should have an eye out to see if that's happening. Well, thanks very much for that, Rob. That's all for this week. Thank you to Caroline, Stephen, Rob, and our guests, Stephen Jones and Rishanara Ali. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.